You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So we as a church have been walking through the Gospel of John for over a year now. We took a summer off, and we are now in the final chapter, and we will wrap up our time in the Gospel of John next week. And so as we've been walking through the Gospel of John, John, one of the best friends of Jesus, uh, eyewitness to the, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, is introducing us to Jesus. And, and he invites all the skeptics. And if you come in the room, maybe, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You certainly wouldn't call yourself a believer or a follower of Jesus. And maybe you've got a lot of deep questions about who Jesus is. John wrote his gospel for you because the way he's been introducing us to Jesus up to this point, and even we'll see through next week, is by introducing us to people who don't quite know everything about Jesus, who don't quite get Jesus. People with deep questions and reservations or even misunderstandings about Jesus, we find here John presenting to us as an example and even an invitation, I would say, for you and for me with all our cynicism and skepticism and to bring it to the text. So I'm going to read in this last chapter, Chapter 20, we saw Jesus resurrected and introducing himself, revealing himself to several different people, and this resurrected Jesus begins to appear to many others. And so last week, we spent our time in the first 14 verses of chapter 21. I'm going to read all the way through those, but we're going to spend the majority of our time beginning in verse 15. I'll read all the way to verse 22. So join with me as we begin to to wrap up our time in the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got to the land, when they got, excuse me, when they got out on land, They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Then when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is the word of the Lord, and my prayer is that it becomes more than just ink on a page, but it becomes the very words of God for the people of God. We find ourselves in the 21st chapter the Gospel of John, what's known as the epilogue. Remember the first chapter of the Gospel of John was the prologue, an introduction to what it is that John would be telling us about Jesus. Namely, that Jesus is not a plan B, he's not an accident, but Jesus is the Word of God come to be amongst us, and that Word was with God and was God even from the beginning. Jesus is God, and he's come to be the Word of God, taking on flesh to speak to us And so at the very end of the book, we find here the epilogue, the closing words. As we saw last week in the epilogue, he's tying up some very important loose ends. And he's answering, that is, John is answering some of the questions that are still hanging. And last week we saw in the first first 14 verses, he's answering the question, so, so what is Jesus' relationship to his disciples going to be after the resurrection? And Jesus gives us a very clear picture of what it will look like to live as his disciples in this chapter. In the first 14 verses, we saw that our confidence will not be in our own strength, but instead it will be in the sovereignty of Christ. We saw a a manifestation, again, a tying up of loose ends. For the last chapter, from chapter 20 even to now, John is calling back to all sorts of Topics he raised and introduced earlier in the book, and then he's calling back to them, linking our minds and thoughts back to them. And so last chapter, or excuse me, last week we saw, he, he kind of calls back to the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, one of the last words of Jesus. He says, look, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And he concludes by saying, apart from me, just like a branch that's disconnected from its roots, apart from me, you can do nothing. And in the 21st chapter, you see Peter leading the other disciples out fishing as if they might be able to say, 
well, surely we could fish without Jesus. Maybe when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, surely he doesn't mean that we couldn't be successful at what we're professionals at. And what do we find? No, not even that. Apart from Jesus, there is no fruitfulness. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Jesus says, I'm the vine. Apart from me, apart from full dependence upon me, you can do nothing. We saw that last week, one of the first questions about what does it look like to follow Jesus is that to be a Christian is not about achievement, it's about dependence. We saw the week before that, you can't have both control and trust. And so Jesus shows us, even in a painful way, right? I, I shared with this, last, with this last week, but for those of you who are high achievers, I want to hammer back down on this. It's not a coincidence that the thing that they failed at was the thing that they were really good at. And that they were professionals, and yet even in their profession, they were like, we can do nothing? Nothing, Jesus? And he's like, nope, nothing. And so... The only success they even experience in vocation is because of Jesus and his command. Now again, you saw those words, right? At the, it was early in the day. Remember, this is a callback if you're reading through uh, the Bible. Anytime you catch those words of like, and early in the morning they rose up or something happened early, it's meant to, you're meant to have pictures of like Christmas morning where you don't have to set an alarm for your children. Everyone just gets up expectantly. That's what we're supposed to picture here. God's going to do something. There's going to be a, a lesson John's saying you want to pay attention to. So earlier in the day, early in the day, they're failing and, and Jesus creates a miraculous thing. But, but he, he's also doing something else. He's answering what I would say is the next question is, so what's going to happen to Peter? Peter, who denied and disowned Jesus. And what's going to happen to the rest of the disciples who fled and, and even seemed to doubt or question the resurrection? What should Peter and the other disciples expect in the future now that Jesus is raised from the dead? What is it that they should be anticipating? And the answer to those questions are all found in verses 15 through 19, even to the end of the chapter. What happened to Peter and the others? What's going to happen? And the answer we find beginning in verse 15. But the way he does this is he, John gives us a callback to some other scenes. And I read the first part so you would catch the first one. Did you catch what Jesus was huddled around with fish? A charcoal fire. Now this phrase has shown up before, and if you want to, you can go all the way back to John chapter 13. And you get a picture of, of, the, of the disciples sitting with Jesus. In John chapter 18, where Jesus predicted in John chapter 13 that something would happen. In John chapter 18, what, what happened the last time that John tells us there were some people gathered around a charcoal fire? Peter denied Jesus. And in chapter 13, there's, there's some language that you saw at the end, remember uh, verses 20, 21, and 22 that I read. Did you catch how, Jesus, uh, how John described himself? He said, this was the one who was leaning on and reclining on the chest of Jesus whenever they asked, who is it that's going to betray you in John chapter 13? So don't miss, there's, 
There's, these should be buzzwords, right? This is the loose ends, the, the, the callback to some language he'd used previously in the book. He's, he's coming back and saying, remember that time I mentioned that we were leaning back? I was leaning back on Jesus. He didn't say I. The one that, Je- the one that Jesus loved was leaning back on, on Jesus' chest. Remember that time? Oh yeah, here, there's something you need to know about that. And remember that time that, that I mentioned that there was a charcoal fire that Peter gathered around with others? Yeah, that's important here too, because what Jesus John is doing is he's calling back to both the prediction of Jesus that Peter would deny him and the actual denial. As John was reclining on the chest of Jesus, that was when Peter said to John, or excuse me, Jesus said to Peter, you're going to deny me. And in chapter 18, As Peter was following from a distance, he gathered outside around what? Around a charcoal fire. So don't miss what John is doing here. John is inviting us into remembering, like a flashback of, if you will. For Peter, it was probably more than a flashback. It was like a trigger. It's to remind us of some things that have happened that are questions still hanging in our mind. What about the time when Peter was was told by Jesus that he was was going to deny him? And what about the time that Peter actually denied him? What now? And John says, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. It begins in verse 15. It begins even with the words that Jesus uses to describe or to speak to Peter. When they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter. Now you get this picture here that maybe, maybe Jesus kind of like took his arm around Simon Peter and kind of walked him away. Maybe, maybe kind of like took him separate. Because you see in verse 20, it, it, it's, he says that Peter turned, after, after Jesus says, follow me, Peter turned, and we'll talk about that next week, he turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So there's this, there's this sense in which like Jesus and, and Peter are having this conversation at least kind of on the way away from the rest of these people. Now, that's important for us because I, w- I want to I plug this. One of the things that we believe that we're called to be as a church is to be disciple-making disciples. And the way we do that is simply by mimicking Jesus. We, have, we, just, we think that innovation and, and creativity and doctrine and philosophy is almost always heresy. And so we're just really old school. Like, we're not really excited about finding something new. We're really just trying to dig up things that are old. And so the models that Jesus sets for influencing others are, are that he would regularly gather with a crowd like we do on a Sunday, right? Wow, we're, we, we, we invented this. We thought this up. It's the first time ever, right? Jesus would speak to the crowd and teach to them. But then, see, he did something else. He would pull out of the crowd 12 and invest heavily into them. And then even amongst the 12, he pulled out Peter, James, and John taking them up to the mountain to to see him transfigured. But then even on some occasions, even amongst those, he would pull aside one. And what he does in each of those contexts are simply templates that we try to follow. That is to say very clearly, and I'll push on this, if your only involvement in the life of a church is summed up on a Sunday morning in a crowd of people, you are missing out on the majority of what Jesus even did. And so for us, gospel communities are a way in which we say, okay, let's, 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 let's buckle down a little further. And so there are also opportunities to study the Bible with men and women in this room. We kind of we buckle down even deeper and, 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 and even more tightly with a handful. And then sometimes there's a, a one-on-one aspect to this. But notice why. The, one of the other times in the other gospels, Jesus did this. He pulls Peter aside and he says, you don't remember this? 
He's saying, like, I'm, I'm never going to let you die. Very similar. I'm never going to let you die, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He pulls him aside and goes, get behind me, Satan. Right? Now, you would agree calling someone out on something like that is a fairly difficult thing to do in a crowd of people. Right? That would, that's a good way to whittle the crowd down. Right? If I was like, you know, I, I don't even want, I don't even want to, like, I don't even want to act like I'm pointing. But if, if I were to, like, point at one of you and be like, you, 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 and you're like, it's, it's not helpful, Right? You would feel shame rather than, but notice what Jesus does. He takes the dynamics of, of, of people and, and he recognizes that the most intimate and most important conversations need to be had even together in one-on-one. And so he's walking along, we find here according to verse 20, for whatever the case is, he's speaking directly to Simon. And that's one of the most important things you see right off the bat. They'd finished breakfast, kind of pulls Simon Peter aside. And, and notice John says, he pulls, or he, he finished breakfast, Jesus said directly to Simon Peter. Again, I, I gotta, we got to have a flashback, right? Go all the way back to John chapter 1, right after the prologue in verse 42. Jesus, the first thing he did is he called the disciples to follow him. And it says he brought him to Jesus that is, the friends of Simon Peter brought, brought, brought Peter to Jesus. This is called the first disciples. In fact, most of those were the people listed in verse 2 that I just read. Nathaniel, Thomas, all these guys. But look in verse 42 of chapter 1. Jesus looks at, at Peter and says, You are Simon, son of John. Notice what he says. You shall be called Cephas, or Cephas, which means Peter. Now, in, in Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18, he gives us a vision for what the church will look like and, and, and the profession of faith. He gives a play on words and he's like, Peter, your name is rock or P, you know, Peter means, the word kephos means rock or rocky. And he's like, your name is stone or rock. But this profession of faith in me that I am the Lord, the, the Christ, the Son of God, that will be the rock on which the church will be built. This profession of the Lordship and divinity of Jesus. So in, in chapter 1, he says, look, the first thing that Peter is told by Jesus is, you've got a new name. Your new life will be marked by your new name. And so you see that there, right? Jesus said to whom? Did you catch that? Simon Peter. Notice very clearly how Jesus addresses this man for the rest of the chapter. Did you catch it? Simon, son of John, do you love me? more than these. Now we talked about this last week, that why they were fishing is still a mystery. And then maybe they were being obedient and waiting for Jesus patiently, like he said he would come to them in Galilee. But John chapter, excuse me, Matthew 28 verse 16 says that they were supposed to wait on a mountain. So at the very least, they weren't where they were supposed to be. But I think John tells us this, and, po- and this is why. He points us to something interesting here that Evidently, there is evidence that to some extent they had gone back to their old way of life. And notice how Jesus addresses Simon. Doesn't call him Peter. And he calls him by his old name. Most likely because at the very least, Peter was tempted to go back to his old ways. And that's interesting because Jesus looks at him and knowing the mission and purpose he has for them says, hey, hey Simon, 
I mean, look at that. Look how he, in, in verse 42, when he first called him Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas. But he says, Simon, son of John, and questions him. Don't miss that. That's one of the most important things. He uses his old name because he was acting like his old self. Do you love me more than, notice that word at the very end of that sentence, do you love me more than these? More than these? Now again, there's, there's, there's a couple of options of what he's talking about here. If these men are out there pursuing their old way, then there's at least, at least two different things that Jesus is hinting at. Most clearly, he's asking Peter, hey, do you love me more than the rest of these disciples? But he might also be hinting to the fact that, hey, Peter, do you love me more than these nets, than these fish, than your old way of living? But he's saying, Peter, do you love me more than these? Most likely these other disciples. Now, that may seem like a strange thing to say, but that's right in line. Jesus is going right after his heart here. Going right after the heart of Peter. Because that's exactly the kind of guy that Peter is. In Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus predicts that, that Peter will, will deny Jesus, what does Matthew tell us Peter answered? He doesn't just say, no, I, I won't fall away. Look what he does. He th- throws, a, throws a little bit of a jab. Though they all will fall away, right? They being these disciples around them. Not the, Jesus. I mean, the, they, they may let you down, but not me. I will never fall away. And you saw this also in John chapter 13. J- Jesus says, look, Peter, you're going to deny me. And, and what does he say? He says, I will die for you. Just listen to the language already. He doesn't say, we will die for you. He's like, ah, Jesus, I I will die for you. Do you get it? So when he says, Peter, do you really, when you compare yourself to other people pridefully, do you really, you really think there's merit? You really think you love me more than these guys? Don't miss that word. He's calling back and and poking at something deep in Peter. That is the temptation to look around and, and think that he's better than or stronger than think that he's somehow by his own merit. And even in John chapter 13, verse 37, when he says, I, I, will, I will die for you. He doesn't say we. He sees the threats coming up, and what does he see? Does he see, does he see a team? Does he see himself as a member of a team? Does he see following Jesus as a team project? And no. And I would say to many of you who have probably bought into the lie of Western post-enlightenment individualism that's professed mostly in, in Western and American Christianity so powerfully. I, I got this. And he says, do you really? Do you? You got this? Now his response is, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know. He, he appeals to the omniscience or the all-knowing nature of Jesus. Now, you know I love you. You know what's true. You know my love. But Jesus is like, yeah, I do know. And your actions show your affections. 
And so he redirects him and says, okay, fine, then feed my lambs. Now, three different times he says some derivative of this. He uses the word lambs and sheep. It's meant to be this all-encompassing view of feeding. You saw that in, in the very first instance. And then in the next instance, he says tending, and it says feeding again. So he says, feed my lambs, the little ones, and then tend the sheep, the, the big ones, and then feed the sheep, the big ones. And, and so he's saying, look, there's, there's a sense in which your restoration will involve you caring for and being steward over what I entrust to you. Don't miss what he's saying. You can't do this alone. This is not about you. And so the step of restoration for him is to say, here's your task. Go, feed my sheep. But notice he appeals to something. He says, Jesus, you know all things. You know that I love you the first time he says it. Yes, Lord, you know in the second time that I love you. And the last time, you know all things, Jesus. You know I love you. You know everything. You know that I love you. Now, it's interesting. He appeals to the omniscience of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't take that as a satisfying answer, does he? It's as if he's to say like, you're right. I do know all things. I do know the extent of your love. I do, I do know what you really love. And notice, this is something that, that for us is, is powerful. Like, you hang around a person more than a few minutes, you will find very clearly what they love. And if I just hang around with you, just this is, there's, if I looked at your, your checkbook, nobody writes checks anymore, but if I looked at your bank ledger, your online, I know some, some of you balance your checkbook, good for you. Some of you just, if I looked at your online bank portal, I'd know what you love, wouldn't I? And down to the penny, you wouldn't be able to lie. Because down to the decimal, we would find out what you value. If I looked at your schedule, I'd find out what you really value, what you really love, what your affections are really stirred towards. One of the last things, if I looked at your relationships, how you relate to people, I'd know what you love. And Jesus is, is receiving like, well, you know what I love, Jesus. And Jesus is like, yeah. And that's the problem. Now don't miss it. A lot of people do this on, on a regular basis, right? If you heard someone kind of appeal to the omniscience of God, it's usually a misdirection. It's a red herring. And you're like, hey, like, like Jesus to Peter. Hey, Peter, I had this concern about this. And, and I think we, we go to a person. We're like, hey, I have this concern about this. And, and what's, what's a very typical, again, this is post-enlightenment, Western individuality, individualism speaking. And then what they'll say? It's something like, only God can judge me. Yes. And that should terrify you. If you think that's a defense you don't know God. Right? So, so he, don't, don't, people, don't miss this. People still do this. Right? Like as a misdirection, he's like, he's like Peter, do, do you really love me? And Peter's like, only God can judge me. And he's like, that's the problem. That's the problem. The Lord knows your motives. The Lord knows your hearts. And while he thought at the beginning he was appealing to the omniscience of Jesus as a way to get out of it, right? Did you catch that? You know I love you. And you'd have, you'd have thought, for Peter probably would have thought like, well, that's the end of this. We don't have to talk about this anymore. And Jesus is like, nope. I do know what you love. I do know what you love. And that's why he asks over again, do you really? Do you really though? Now remember, this was Peter who had slashed Malchus in chapter 18. 
But his physical courage was not enough that night. And so for Peter, the spirit was willing, right? He's like, Jesus, you know this. But his flesh was weak, and he publicly disowned the Lord. And so what he thought was an appeal to justification, Jesus, you know my heart, was actually Jesus peeling back the layers. And what we see, and I'll end on this in in a few minutes here, like, what we see is a picture of repentance and restoration in this story. You see, Jesus restores through repentance. Peter wanted to like misdirect. Look, Jesus, we don't have to talk about it. You know I love you. And Jesus is like, I do know it, and that's why we have to talk about it. And it's as if, okay, remember, did you, do you remember this? Like, I don't know what triggers you, but apparently John tells us in this chapter what would have triggered Peter was something like the number three. Because if he'd have gone back to chapter 18 and he denied him three times, it's as if Jesus is like, do you love me? Nope. Let's try this again. Do you love me? Nope. It's as if to say this third, this threefold questioning is a callback to the betrayal that exposed what Peter really loved. And it's, it's, I don't know a better word to describe it, but it's as if Jesus is rubbing his nose in it. And that's an awful analogy. I mean, that analogy comes from potty training a puppy, doesn't it? Right? You, 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 you go, no. no and, I mean, you, if you have to physically rub, like this is bad. This is not good. And it's as if Jesus is doing something that I, I think on the surface, you might agree, it seems harsh. But don't miss, he restores through repentance. He restra- that's how he puts us back together. He leads us to the mess and says, no, this is what is really wrong. But look what he exposes. He says, do you love me? Now, I've got to go into this. Now, there, there's some, some language stuff going on here. The Greek tells us there's, there's at least something going on here. We shouldn't make too much of it, but there is something. He says, so Jesus says, and we all know this, or you've heard me say this maybe in uh, talking about the New Testament. The New Testament has multiple different Greek words for love. Love, the agape, that is a, 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 a godly, self-sacrificing, higher love. Storge, which is a parental love. And then there's phileo, a brotherly, sisterly love. And eros, which is a, a romantic love, right? And so he says, Simon, son of John, do you agapao? Do you love me with a higher love? And don't miss what Peter says. And some of you have like an NASB, you'll, you'll catch some of this. Um, or if you may, I mean, some even versions of the, the iterations of the NIV have this, but he says, do, do you love me to the utmost? Do you have a higher love for me? Do you agapao me? And you would think he would say, yes, I agapao you. But what does he respond with? He says, yes, I phileo you. He's like, do you love, he says, do you love me like God loves? And he's like, yeah, bro, I love you like a brother. And he does it again. The second time, Jesus says, do you agapao me? Do you have a higher self-sacrificing love for me? And he goes, Jesus, you know I have a brotherly love for you. Now, the Gospel of John is, has used these words interchangeably throughout, and you even see that. He said, because the third time he asks, he says, that's the third time he asks if you love me. So they're not radically different, but there's something nuanced here. that The third time Jesus says, okay, fine, Peter, do you even phileo me? Do you even love me like a brother? And what was Peter's response? Did you catch it? Simon, son of John, old name from the old life, do you even love me like a brother? 
And Peter was grieved. He was grieved. Because he had said to him, the third time, do you love me? And the third time he asked, it was even like a lower love. Don't miss this, that the way that Jesus restores is through repentance. And I know what you'll say. You'll say, is it, is it, is it loving to expose people's weaknesses and failures? It can't possibly be both gracious and loving and also in, in kind to, to expose someone, to disagree with them. And, and I would argue that like, that's, that's actually kind of the, the narrative that, that we're currently bought into. That's, if you want to know why, we're such a politically and ethnically polarized place right now. It's because we don't have the capacity to think beyond the superficiality of I love you, but I also disagree with you. And those things are not mutually exclusive. We, we currently just don't have the taste for it. We don't have the, we don't have the capacity for it. We don't have the attention span for it. And so right now, if, if politically or otherwise you say to someone, I disagree with you, they immediately go, why do you hate me, Right? And, and it's like, and the way that we win political arguments is what? Not by engaging with ideas. We do what? We demonize. We go, you should, they're evil. Just don't miss that. Christians are the people who are the hardest to offend because we know that both repentance and grace are not mutually exclusive. They're the way that God works. One author, Timothy Keller, puts it this way, is that we often think of Jesus as the, the great physician. But Keller says he's the worst kind of a physician. He's a surgeon. I know some of you, that's, that's deeply offensive for you because that's you. But nobody likes, like, hey, I want to go see a doctor. The guy with the knife, like, whoo, that gives us the creeps, doesn't it? If Jesus is the good physician, then he's the most scary of physicians. He's a surgeon. And with precision, he cuts out the cancer and brings healing. But don't miss, that's going to like push against us. It seems like Jesus is being cruel here, doesn't he? seems like he's rubbing his nose in this in a way that's painful. It's like, Jesus is unnecessary. You don't have to drag him through this. He knows. He remembers. So the first thing that Jesus does when we see he restores through repentance is he exposes what we're truly responsible for. Like a surgeon, he opens us up. So the first step is that he holds us responsible. The first step of restoration through repentance is to expose us to what we're genuinely responsible for. If Jesus restores through repentance, then we have to notice that the first thing he does is he shows us how deep the wound really is. Notice what he doesn't do for Simon. He doesn't say, you need to repent of your behavior. And he doesn't say you need to find someone to blame. He goes right after it. Now that's important for us because the first thing he does is he, he makes us deeply aware of our own responsibility for it. And so here's what I would say to you. Like, if you're like me and you're good at blaming others, as long as there's always something to keep all of the blame off of you, then there will always be something that keeps God's grace and forgiveness and joy from being on you. The extent to which your own sin and sinfulness is someone else's fault is the extent to which God's grace will be someone else's source of joy. It's only when we look and go like, I, this is, I did this. I'm responsible for this. I mean, he, look, he rubs his nose in it. 
Do you really? Do you even do? Oh, you love me like a brother. Do you even love me that much? And then what might seem cruel is actually the precision of a surgeon's knife. Saying, this is deeper than you think. The first step of restoration through repentance is taking deep responsibility. Now, as the church, we call that confession. That is an agreement with God. Because notice, he had an opportunity at the beginning to agree with Jesus. What did Jesus say? He says, you will fall away. And the first denial of Jesus was the denial that Jesus knew what he was talking about. And he says, Peter, you're going, to walk away, you're going to walk away from me. And what does Peter do? Does Peter go like, oh, you're right, Lord. I'm so weak. I need your help. Without your help, I won't make it. No, he goes, I got this. Though all should fall away, I will die for you, right? And the first denial is he begins to say, no, I, I've got this. And Jesus reminds him. That. And I would say the extent to which you are not fully responsible for your own sinful actions is the extent to which you will miss out on God's grace. Think of it this way. There's a miraculous and an amazing and even simultaneous action of our confession and repentance in God's grace. It's like it's waiting to grab you the minute you can actually testify to it. Once you confess it, it's as though he's poised and ready to remove it. Just look at it this way. Imagine you owed me money, right? Maybe even a lot of money. And I said to you, okay, I'm going to forgive the debt. I'm going to pay back what you owe. What would keep you from lying to me about how much you really owe? If I said, I'm going to pay for everything, what, what, would, it, what would possibly possess you to go like, to, to say, okay, I only, I only actually, like, or, or to lie to me and say, I owe this much, and then leave some debt? You get it? The extent to which we don't actually own up for our own sin and sinfulness is the extent to which we're saying, Jesus, I got this. You can't actually fix what's wrong with me. And I own encourage like that, that's gonna hinder you will never experience God's grace. It would hinder my ability to pay off your debt. Now, if we were haggling over how much I might pay, then right, you might not want to embarrass yourself and tell me how much you really owe. But if I swore to you and I, with my own blood, said I will pay whatever you owe, then you would be inspired to tell me honestly whatever you owe. Why? Because you know that whatever you would say would be immediately and spontaneously, simultaneously met with my willingness to pay it back. And the truth is that it would never be paid off. It would never be paid off until you come to terms with how much you really owe. You see, the goal of repentance is not just changing behavior. The goal of repentance is to be restored to God. Jesus is not helping you pay back what you owe. It's too big. It's too amazing. Should you blow your nose when it's runny? Yes. But you know that if you don't treat the underlying condition, no amount of Kleenex will ever heal you. And so look... He, he not only exposes how deeply responsible and deeply flawed he is, but he even exposes the source of it. He exposes the source of it. He doesn't just expose what he did wrong, he exposes the wrong love. You see, a desire to change behavior is not repentance. Just to want to do things better is not repentance. That is a false repentance. Don't miss that. Did you, did you notice Jesus did not even address his behavior, did he? Right? Peter lied. 
He betrayed. He, he, Jesus did not even mention his behavior, did he? What did he do? He mentioned his heart. Don't miss that. Repenting of behavior is saying, I'm basically a good person who accidentally did a bad thing. I don't, I don't need to be changed or transformed. I just need to fix my behavior. But you can see this throughout the entirety of the Bible. Isaiah 6, the calling of Isaiah. He, he has a vision of God's holiness. And what's his first thing? Boy, I need to really stop doing bad things, man. I really need to clean up my life. What does he say? Woe to me! I am undone. I am disintegrated, literally. I am a man of unclean lips. And I serve a people of unclean lips. My problem isn't just what comes out of my mouth. My problem is my mouth. He didn't say, I'm a, I just sometimes do bad things. He says, I am disintegrated by an encounter with the perfection of God. And so faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. They need each other. And repentance isn't trading one idol for another. That's not repentance. And so he goes right at the depths of this. If you haven't repented deep enough, then you haven't experienced this. To be a Christian isn't just reordering your behavior. To be a Christian, according to this passage, is to have reordered loves. Our heart has been transplanted. It's been completely changed. Peter denied what the Lord had said about his weakness. And Peter said that he'd be strong enough to die for Jesus. But in the end, he didn't really believe Jesus about his weakness. Therefore, he did not believe Jesus about his ability to restore him. So don't miss that. There's, there's something powerful going on here to really begin to understand what Jesus is doing by exposing what's really broken and bringing us to a deeper awareness of our own responsibility and the very identity of sinfulness that we carry with us. It's not meant to harm. It's meant to restore. Back to the surgeon analogy. You have cancer. How much of the cancer do you want the surgeon to remove? See what I mean? Like this, there's this picture of like, if Jesus is going to fix us, if Jesus is going to heal us and restore us, then he has to restore us completely. And we have to be able to admit our, the depths of our brokenness. Notice what that means, that our hope is not our own morality. Our hope is Christ's mercy. In the end, it, it wouldn't do Peter any good to just like promise to never do that, right? Can you imagine that? Him saying like, you're right, Jesus, I promise I'll never betray you again. I'll never deny you, right? As if that would mean anything. And don't miss, that's what most people think the Christian life is. It's like you weekly come back and you, oh, I swear to God, I won't do it again. Rather than going like, God, I can't do this. Apart from you and your mercy, I can't be fixed. So notice, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. It's a big difference. And so like, don't miss it. He could have easily just said, you're right. You're right, Jesus, I'll never do it again. And Jesus could have very superficially been like, I mean, can you imagine, you, Peter, you promise you won't do that again? You promise? All right, we're good, right? Like that's as though that fixes it. And don't miss, like he's saying, no, if you don't address what you really love, what you really value, what you really adore, what you feel to be worthy of your life, then nothing will change. Look, I see this all the time. Repentance that isn't deep enough. Man, I, I try to help like some of you are like men fighting pornography and, and they're like, I promise I won't do it again. I need to stop doing that. And it's like, no, you need to stop loving yourself. You need to stop thinking that, that your pleasure is worthy of all the wealth of the universe. You need to stop selling yourself, giving yourself over to something that's not worthy. And until you repent of loving something more than God, then you're not repenting deep enough. 
And you may have some short-term, like, self-righteous, happy results, right? But they're short-lived. For some of you, I mean, you, you, so I know we're, we're right off the, the, off the, off the, the tails of, of Mother's Day. Now, for some of you moms, like, you're, you're just riddled with stress and worry about your children and life. And, 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 and that's a disobedience, Jesus says. And you could just say, like, you're right, I'll just stop worrying. I'm going to do better. It's like, you'll never experience freedom from worry until you repent of thinking that, hey, God, I'm sorry for thinking I know better about history than you do. I'm sorry for, I admit, I think I know better than you. Until you repent that deeply, you'll never experience fruit. And so look, he, he rubs his nose in it, but he doesn't stop there. He peels back as deep as possible and says, what's wrong here is not your actions. What's wrong is your heart. And if you don't let me into your heart, if you don't let me into the very center and core of your being, what you love and admire and worship, then you won't ever experience freedom from this. Now I know for many of you, this is the scariest thing I've ever, like, you, you, this part of repentance you, you've experienced before, right? Someone just making, maybe, maybe you feel very bad about things that you've done. But notice what he said, he, he doesn't do that so that he would shame him. Did you catch it? He does it so that he can recommission him. He can repurpose him. He can remake him into something new. One of the third components is deep and godly grief. When he questioned Peter to the depths, he said, do you, really, do, you even, do you even really love me like a brother? And it says Peter was grieved. And this is where, again, we might, maybe this is where some of you are. You know what it feels like to feel bad about your sin. But, but look what 2 Corinthians 7 tells us about grief. Paul wrote a letter, 1 Corinthians, it was a bit scathing because this church in Corinth was doing a lot of crazy stuff. And word got back to Paul that some people had their feelings hurt, right? Okay, because when you tell someone what they're doing is sinful and wrong, right, unless we have a deep understanding of God's grace, our first thought is like, again, like, why do you hate me? Why are you against me? And so some people were like, this hurt me. And so Paul addresses it and says, look, for even though I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. I mean, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you. Like, I love you. I don't want to hurt. I have no desire to hurt you. I'm not a surgeon that's cutting people for fun. I see that it, it grieved you. But listen, but only for a little while. Now, as it is, I what? I rejoice. Not because you're grieved. I'm not glad you were grieved. I don't rejoice because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. Now listen to the way he describes godly grief. A godly grief so that, in order that, you suffered no loss through us. We pointed out sin, and you experienced grief, but it was a godly grief, so it was no loss. In the verse 10 he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. You hear that? Don't you love that? Like, freedom. That's in the past, and Jesus has healed me from that. Whereas what? Worldly grief produces death. Bruce's death. Think of it this way. There's two different views of repentance that's espoused. One is of the world and one is of the Lord. We don't repent because our sin is bad. We repent because God's grace is good. There's a big difference. One of them is a prison in which most of you live. And so there's a big difference in feeling bad about the consequences of your sin and feeling bad and being grieved by the cost that Jesus paid for your sin. Two completely different grief, types of grief. 
I don't want you to repent because you feel bad. I want you to repent because Jesus is so good and he's paid for it. There's a difference. There's a difference between grieving over Jesus and grieving over the negative consequences of sin. You know this, right? When a person comes and they're sorry for something, but they use like qualifiers, well, I'm sorry, you feel that way, or I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Rather than a person who comes and says, man, I'm sorry, I'm a bad friend. One is a language of identity that needs transforming, and one is just, I'm not that bad a person. Side note, anyone, tell, anyone who ever says the phrase, I'm not a bad person, they always say that right before or right after they say something awful they did. And those two don't add up. And notice what Jesus says here. You're not a good person who did a bad thing, Simon. You're a dead person that needs to be made alive. You're a rotten person with a rotten heart, but don't fret. I have come to show you mercy and implant in you a new heart. Marked by my mercy and grace. There's a difference. And so I would say to you, if you're not experiencing the kind of life change that you want, it's because you're not repenting deep enough. Down deep, every sin is like what Peter has shown here. Down deep, every sin is saying, I know better than God. And until you repent at that level, then you're basically just saying, God, I actually know what's best. I'll fix this on my own. Rather than saying, Lord, I am undone. If you don't remake me, I'm lost. Some important things to see here. Jesus connects the love of him with building care and community. I don't know if you caught that. He reconciles, restores, and then recommissions Peter. And he recommissions Peter to what? To love and care for his people. I love the picture of that. Um, I'll say to some of you in the room, if I drop my kids off with you to babysit them, that's literally the highest compliment I can pay. If I say, hey, would you care for my children? And, and I know you, you might be thinking, he just wants to go on a date and he's using me. I, maybe. I apologize. I'm not Jesus. Surprise. But if I say, hey, I want to go out on a date and I need someone to care for my kids and I ask you, you get how that's the highest compliment I can pay, right? You get, there's no, I don't, I don't own it. I don't have any other greater possession. And for me to say, would you care for this great possession? Is a, it's, it's a word of compliment that I can't, I, can't even, I can't even begin to explain. And look what Peter receives from Jesus. Hey, I know what you did. I know what's wrong. I know what you love. But here, I'm going to set you on the right path. And guess what? Take my most prized possession. Take my flock. Take and care for these people. Don't miss that our hope is not in our own morality, but it's ultimately an encounter of God's mercy. And so therefore, our hope is the mercy of Christ. Our concern is for the people of Christ, and then now our commitment is for the cross of Christ. Did you catch what he says at the very end there? We'll talk more about this next week. <laughs> he says, one day, he just throws a parable out, doesn't he? Hey, one day someone's going to stretch you out. That phrase, stretch you out, would have always been used in that particular day and age as synonymous with dying on a cross. He's like, when you were young, you did whatever you want, and one day you're not. But look what Jesus does. Ultimately, he meets the broken and downtrodden. He restores them, and then he recommissions them. He meets the broken and downtrodden. He exposes the depth of his need, and then immediately, like simultaneously in exposing the depth of, like the depth of, of brokenness that goes to the heart, literally the heart, the love of Peter. And what does he do? He restores him. 
heals him and recommissions him and then grants him the greatest gift. Our hope is in the mercy of Jesus because he comes and he meets with us. And so if some of you are like, maybe you're here like, wait, again, I said this last week, maybe this is the part where you expect me to say, all right, now that I've done this, this is, this is where I turn and I go, you better do better this week. And some of you want that. That's the, maybe that's the religion you've been fed. And, I, and you, you better go please God this week. But that's not good news, is it? The good news we see here for Peter is that those who have failed, if you stumble in this, this room today and you know you don't measure up and you have failed, look what Jesus teaches us. The people who are downtrodden, the people who know they can't measure up, what does he do? He comes alongside them. He comforts them. He restores them. Like a good surgeon, it hurts. He cuts all the way to, to, the, to the depths to pull out what's killing us, to set us on a trek of new life. And then he gives us a new purpose. He says, come, join me in caring for my flock. Jesus does something amazing. He comes near to you and I when we're brokenhearted and downtrodden, overwhelmed with guilt, shame, and our own failure. And he restores us, and he recommissions us. I'll end on this. 1 Peter 5, this is later Peter writing to the church. He says, I exhort the elders, that the elder pastor bishops among you speaking to the leaders in the church. He says, I exhort the elders among you I love the humility he uses here, just as a fellow elder. And I'm just a fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. I love that. I'm a partaker. I, love I, have, I have experienced this glory. I have experienced this grace. You think of John 21, right? I, I knew, I, I knew in the moment I was least deserving, I became a partaker of the glory that God revealed. I mean, not by killing me, but by restoring me. So he says, now shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, right? Like I can do this, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful game, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. That's something coming from a guy like Peter, right? Something must have changed. Being examples to the flock. And I love this. Verse four, listen to what he says. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. When the chief shepherd appears, he won't come and crush you. He won't come and destroy you. He will come alongside you, heal you. He'll put you back together. And when he comes back, he won't come with vengeance. He will come what? With a crown of glory. Friend, if you've wandered into this place overwhelmed with your own sense of failure and inadequacy, don't miss the good news. Jesus comes alongside us and grants us a gift of his grace all the way to the depths that our heart needed. And he showers his mercy on us. And when he comes back, he won't come back to destroy us. He'll come back to invite us into his glory. Did you hear the words he said twice? I'll end with that. Now follow me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your mercy towards Peter. Thank you especially for the way that it even reminds me of your mercy towards me. That you being rich in mercy have made us alive together with Christ. 
not because we have deserved it, but because you and your grace have made a way for it. For many in this room, the thought of deep repentance is terrifying. And the thought that, that Jesus could both love us but expose our deep need seems, seems like a contradiction. Would you begin to help us even today? Grant us the, the ability to understand and see this grace. It's not a grace without admitting fault, but instead it's a, it's a grace in spite of our fault. So for some in this room, maybe this is the first time they've heard this good news that, that our failure doesn't keep us ultimately from your grace, but instead your grace overwhelms our failure. That we can't out your mercy. I thank you for Peter, and may we, may we identify with him today and admit that we need you to change our hearts. Maybe for the rest of us, there's places in our lives that we want to see deep change. We want to see transformation. We want to experience more joy. Maybe today would be the reminder that the reason we're hindered from experiencing the next level of freedom, of shame, is because we haven't realized how deep the wound goes. We haven't realized how deep our guilt goes. Would you help us to open our eyes to the even deeper and greater need that we have for you and your grace? Not so that you will draw us out to shame us, but so that you will, you will open our eyes to how much grace is already available to us. For those in this room that are scared to profess you as Lord, that are afraid to admit sin, would you right now overwhelm them with the promise, whatever, you, whatever is confessed today has already been paid for. Whatever can be admitted before Christ today has already been paid for. It's already settled. May we draw near to you in worship knowing that there is mercy and grace available to us as deep as we possibly need in Jesus' name. Amen.